All right, the way we're going to begin this morning is the way we always begin. We want to talk to our young ones and uh, help you all understand with just a simple story what the passage is going to be about, what the sermon is going to be about. So, uh, kids, it's a true story. True story, 100 years ago, there was a great philosopher. Y'all, kids, you all know what a philosopher is? It's like someone who's like a big, deep thinker, like think, 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 and then like teaches people what they, what they think. So there's this great philosopher, wise, wise, wise uh, philosopher, and uh, he's out and enjoying a, like a beautiful day like today, just a nice sunny day, sitting on a log, and he hears something. True story, he hears this buzzing, and this is what he says. He says, if there's a buzzing noise, somebody's making a buzzing noise. And this is how philosophers think. Okay, if there's a buzzing noise, somebody's making a buzzing noise, and the only reason for making a buzzing noise that I know of is because you're a bee. And then he thought about it, and he said, and the only reason for being a bee that I know of is making honey. And then he thought about it, and he said, and the only reason for making honey is so that I can eat it. This great philosopher said, I hear buzzing. That means you've got to be a bee. And if you're a bee, your only purpose is to make honey. And the only purpose for making honey is for me to eat it. Anyone know who that great philosopher was? Kids. Keller. Winnie the Pooh. Which, no joke, y'all. hundred years ago, Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> this is crazy, too. Okay, Winnie the Pooh. Uh, do y'all not, and if you don't know who Winnie the Pooh is, you've got to go figure out who Winnie the Pooh is. Okay, why does Winnie the Pooh think the bee exists? Kids, Why? Who does the bee exist for? Winnie thinks the bee exists for... You can say... For him! For Winnie! Thank you! Yes! Winnie thinks the bee exists for him, that it's all about the Pooh Bear. It's all about Winnie the Pooh. Okay, is Winnie the Pooh, though... Like, this is a serious question, y'all. Like, really, kids. Is Winnie the Pooh just a silly old bear? Actually, I think he's a great, great philosopher. Let me ask you this, kids. I want you to be really honest. Just knee-jerk reaction. Kids, why do your parents exist? Someone said don't answer that. Come on, answer. Kids, what do you think? Why do your parents exist? For you, yeah. To get you stuff. To take you where you need to go. To take care of you. To make you food. Uh, yeah, all that stuff. Okay. Uh, why do you think your friends exist? To play with. Yeah, to make, it's like, to make me happy. We can think that about our family. We can think that about our friends. What about these friends here? What about this church family? Why does the church exist? Oh, that was the turn. That was so good, Charlie. Yes, to worship God. And we do want to say that the church does exist for you. The church exists to take care of you. But that's not the only reason the church exists. How about this? Why do you think you exist? Do you exist for the church? Oh, that's a tricky question. But here's what I want to say is like, do, are you supposed to serve and take care of the church too, kids? Yeah. Yes. And you said that earlier. You said, yes, we, we, we come here to worship God. Listen, here's the big, big question that we're going to talk about today is why does God exist? Does God exist to take care of us and to yes, and to take care of all of our desires? Or do we exist for God's desires? 
for God's desires. Yes, that's what Paul is going to talk about all in this, in this big, big passage today. Paul is going to say, we exist for God's desires. And the big question is, what, what and this is the last question I'm going to ask you, what is God's desire for you? What does God want for you? He wants to love you, and he wants you to what? Love him. Love him. It was so good. Like, that is God's desire for you, that you would love him. But, last thing, to love him, do you know what you have to do, kids? In order to love God, and in order to obey him, you actually have to know his love for you. And we always say this every Sunday, how do you know God loves you? You look at, what's his name? <laughs> we were so close. <laughs> to know that God loves you, you look at Jesus. And you see that Jesus came and he lived for you and he died for you in order to save you. And if you know Jesus' love for you, you won't be able to help but love Jesus and to love everyone else, to love others with his love. You got to know Jesus's love for you in order to love him and to love others. That's what we're going to learn today in Romans chapter one. And we're going to begin in verse 16. Uh, we've just started our, our series in the book of Romans this spring. And you know, we said this last time, Paul doesn't waste any time jumping into the deep end. Uh, this is really hard stuff today. Uh, because this is hard stuff about the wrath of God. And the subject of God's wrath is just not our favorite. Uh, many have been the subject of abuse and mistreatment by self-righteous legalists who have used God's wrath to shame people. Other, other people have really never heard biblical teaching on God's wrath because they only ever grew up hearing that God, all God is is love and He affirms you whoever you are just as you are. Uh, and for others, uh, it's hard to hear about God's wrath because you hear it and then you begin to fear for loved ones who are not Christians. Uh, but we want to say to all of that is that there is wondrous, wondrous hope, the hope of the gospel here, and it's for all. So please stand for the reading this morning, Romans chapter 1, and we're going to begin verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal, the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. 
For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to, to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner, manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. The Word of the Lord. Please be seated. Uh, years ago, uh, a campus ministry in England published a modern version of Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, but they did it without citing it as Scripture. Uh, so they didn't include any verses or, or anything like that in it. It, it was just the text, uh, and they wrote it as if it had uh, recently been written, like in the 21st century. So they, they write this thing, they publish it, and they distribute it around the campus. Uh, and very, very soon, the student leaders of the campus ministry were called to appear before university officials. Uh, and they were censured, and they were told to produce the author uh, of the text. To which they confess it's God. Uh, uh, w- but that, what that means is the truth of the gospel It is offensive. It always has been. It always will be. Uh, And here is Paul, and he explains, he's writing to the Roman church that is full of both Jews and Gentiles, and he explains why all the Gentiles need the gospel because they are all under God's wrath. And Paul is answering the question that many people have today. Is that fair? Like, is God fair? Isn't God being harsh and unfair with the, with the Gentiles at, who are you know, outside of the church? That's who he's talking about. Mankind. Uh, that's, who, that's who a Gentile is. A Gentile is just a non-Jew. So he's talking about mankind. And when it's like, we want to say that, you know, yes, the Gentiles in the first century ancient Near East, uh, yes, they were all about idolatry and they were all about sexual immorality, but they didn't have what the Jews had. Like They didn't have the Ten Commandments. They didn't have the Law of God. They didn't have the Prophets. They didn't have all of the Old Testament writings. And it, and it is the same question today. We ask that same question of what about people in other countries who don't have the Bible? Like who have never heard the Gospel? Is it fair that God judges them? Paul says Gentiles are guilty because they do know God and they reject Him. Which begs that question of, wait, how do they know God without a Bible? Yes, it is true. They do not have special revelation, which that special revelation thing is God revealing Himself through the prophets. Things like uh, Mount Sinai, Moses, the Ten Commandments stuff. It's God revealing Himself through the apostles. It's, it's that thing that we have today that we call the Bible. Uh, can, let's just ask this. Can you be saved apart from that special revelation about Jesus? No. 
That's why God gave us special revelation because it alone is sufficient to know Jesus savingly and to be rescued from the wrath of God. But, Paul says, verses 19 and 20, he says, all human beings who have ever lived, they do have general revelation. Uh, uh, General revelation uh, is this thing, uh, God revealing himself to all mankind in nature. Like you can look out at creation. It's general revelation is God revealing himself to mankind in nature and in our human consciousness so that every person knows the one God exists and that we are accountable to him. Everyone is made in God's image, so everyone knows that God is there and they know what he's like. It says here his invisible attributes are clearly seen. That's some fun, ironic paradox right there. Uh, His invisible attributes are clearly seen. We know God is there, and we know He is good, and we know He is just, and we know He is powerful and sovereign, beautiful and majestic. You look at creation, you have a conscience. Everyone knows God and what He is like. And we know what we're like. And that we have not only fallen short of God, we know that we have rejected Him. Mankind knows it has rejected God. It's not, Paul's not saying, it's not that everyone should know God, it's that everyone does know God, but, verse 18, they suppress this truth in sin. And so, they are without excuse. Ignorance is not an excuse. As in like, oh, if only I had known you were real God, I would have worshipped and loved you. It's not an excuse. Because to, to suppress something means you actually have the thing. You have to have the thing to suppress the thing. So imagine like this. Imagine you're in a pool, and you've got one of those beach balls, and you sit on the beach ball, and then you look at your friends, you put up your arms like, hey, hey look, no beach ball. Where'd the beach ball go? And there's no beach ball here. And yet, you know, deep down, there is a beach ball. You're just suppressing the truth. And the irony is the truth that is keeping you afloat as you are intimately connected to it and suppressing it. That's the picture of what Paul is explaining here. Uh, And and then there's this progression. Uh, His progression moves to, there's this exchange. There are two refrains in this passage. One of the refrains is this stuff about exchange. So here's the progression. First, the Gentile knows the truth of God. Second, but then they suppress the truth. And then third, then they make an exchange. The Gentile knows the truth of God, but suppresses that truth and then makes an exchange. Verse 23, mankind exchanged the glory of the Creator for the created. Verse 25, mankind exchanged the truth for a lie. Verse 26, mankind exchanged natural relations for unnatural relations. And then here, to tease this out, Paul spends some verses on this last exchange of women exchanging natural relations with men for unnatural relations with women, and men exchanging natural relations with women for unnatural relations with other men. And Paul is not picking on homosexuality. But in Paul's day, homosexuality is widespread and it is common, and it's not controversial, except among Jews and Christians. And so, it is a readily identifiable manifestation of what Paul is talking about here, which is idolatry. 
In exchange for worshiping God as creator, mankind chooses to worship himself as God. Last Sunday, we said it's not an anachronism, it's not anachronistic to say that Paul lived in a postmodern world like us. It's actually uh, better to say that we live in a postmodern world like Paul did. Today, sexual immorality, it's widespread, it's common, and it's not controversial except among a minority. And sex today is no longer something you do, it's, it's who you are. Now, now sex is an identity from lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and the list as the acronym, it goes on and it continues to grow. So church historian Carl Truman in his book, The Rise and, Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, he argues that for the postmodern person, he says, quote, feelings and instincts lie at the heart of authentic moral action and what it means to be truly free and truly human. And, according to the postmodern person, of all socially repressive phenomena, traditional Christianity is the worst offender. Because the institutional church offends against nature and freedom by unnatural, I mean, that, there's irony right there. Uh, the, the accusation is the institutional church offends against nature and freedom by unnaturally regulating sexual behavior through its promotion of the ideal of chaste monogamous marriage and its identification of all other sexual activity as sinful and liable to punishment. What Truman is pointing up there is that all that to say, the, the idea that Christianity prevents people from living free and happy lives, from being true to themselves, it's, that's not a new idea. It's not a new objection to Christianity. Sentiments, feelings, desires, they've always been the foundation for the ethics of the unbeliever. It was true in Paul's day. It's true in ours this thing that aesthetic sense, like in and of itself, that is the judge between what's good and what's bad, which means that truth for mankind, it's a matter of taste. Taste and desire are truth. And for Paul, just like for us, this is a manifestation of this exchange of mankind worshiping mankind in place of God, in rejection of God. Now, that being said, way too many people read Romans 1 and they stop right there as if Paul were saying that homosexuality is the worst sin and that's all Paul's concern is right here. That's wrong. Because Paul keeps going to point up mankind's comprehensive idolatry. Verse 28, God gave mankind up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Okay, so mankind, that means that mankind does not judge and make decisions for right and wrong. 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness. That is, mankind always wants what other people have. There's malice. That is, uh, that people, unbelievers, uh, uh, mankind seek to hurt others verbally, physically. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, uh, uh, maliciousness. They are gossips. That's the inappropriate stuff you say in secret behind people's backs. And then slanderers. That's the inappropriate, inappropriate stuff you say about people out in the open. Haters of God. Insolent. That's people who don't respect other people and refuse to apologize. Haughty. Boastful. You think you're better than others. 
inventors of evil. That's, that's people who like to cross the line and they look for new ways uh, to do something that hasn't been done that's sinful. Disobedient to parents. Young people who despise their parents' authority. Foolish, faithless, those who always break their word. Heartless, ruthless. The Greek here, it has to do with despising natural family relation, uh, affections. Uh, so this would be something like infanticide, abortion, which were very common in first century Roman world. But the worst of the worst of the idolatry of mankind is here at the end of verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That is, unbelieving mankind not only commits themselves to worshiping themselves, they encourage others to do it too. People encourage and affirm others in their idolatry, knowing it's wrong deep down, but there's safety in numbers when going against God, is the thought. All, all of this idolatry, exchanging God for ourselves, exchanging truth for a lie, na- exchanging the natural for the unnatural, all of it is an assault, Paul says, on the Creator. It's this idea of, you haven't made us. Or, it's, you shouldn't have made us this way. Or, or and, and I'll make you pay for making us this way. Do, do you all know the story of Frankenstein? Uh, the, the monster, like, did you know that Frankenstein is not the name of the monster? Frankenstein is the name of the scientist who created the monster, which is kind of in a historical illustration, illustrating the point of the illustration of the story itself, that just this thing of the monster has taken the identity of the creator. Frankenstein is a novel written by Mary Shelley, published in 1818. She started writing it when she was 18. It's a brilliant novel. Uh, It's about young scientist Victor Frankenstein uh, who creates and brings to life a man-like monster that eventually turns on him and destroys him. Now, here's here's the thing. You've got to point out. Victor Frankenstein is an ambitious, prideful, obsessed man. Like, he's not all-powerful, and he's not good. And when his creation comes to life, he is repulsed by it, and he abandons it. That is how mankind thinks of its creator. Like, he's made a mistake in making us the way he has made us, and he's abandoned us. We didn't abandon him. He's abandoned us. And like Frankenstein's monster, mankind launches an assault on the creator and on any who are friends with him. Here's the first exchange. You've got to go read it. Here's the first exchange between Frankenstein and the monster after the monster has just murdered his brother, Frankenstein's brother. He says this. This is the monster saying, All men hate the wretched. How then must I be hated, who am miserable beyond all living things? Yet you, my creator, detest and spurn me, thy creature, to whom thou art bound by ties only dissoluble by the annihilation of one of us. You purpose to kill me? How dare you sport thus with life? Do your duty towards me, and I will do mine towards you and the rest of mankind. If you will comply with my conditions, I will leave them and you at peace. But if you refuse, I will glut the maw of death until it be satiated with the blood of your remaining friends. 
At the, at the climax, Frankenstein breaks his promise to the monster to give the, he, he promises to give the monster a bride, and then he makes the bride, and then he destroys the bride. And, and the monster responds in, in utter rage to his creator, and he says this, Slave, I before reasoned with you, but you have proved yourself unworthy of my condescension. Remember that I have power. You believe yourself miserable, but I can make you so wretched that the light of day will be hateful to you. You are my creator, but I am your master. Obey. This is this thing, like we treat God as if it created us as, as monsters, and that is not what Paul is saying. Paul has a high view of mankind, and he's shocked because we are the image of God, and we are made for fellowship with God, but we have rejected God to worship ourselves. But in suppressing the truth about our Creator, who is all-powerful and good, mankind has launched an all-out assault to destroy Him and those who follow Him in order that mankind may exalt himself. Another pastor uh, uh, said this. Just, this was such a great line. He says, The religions of the world, the philosophies of the world, are not man's attempt to find God. They are man's attempt to reject God. In God's response to all of this, it is wrath. It's His wrath. Gentiles who have never seen the Old Testament, who have never heard God's law, prophets, writings, they are not just ignorant, Paul is saying. He says they are guilty and deserving of God's wrath. It's not that there, it's not that there isn't enough evidence for God. And it's not about emotions. Like, it's not we've had a bad experience and someone put a stumbling block in my way. The problem is not victimhood. And yet, let's just say this, Christians acting like hypocrites and poor teaching definitely has an effect on unbelievers. But that is not why they do not believe. The stumbling block is God Himself. It's Jesus Himself. And people would rather serve themselves than God. And there is a difference. There is a, I was having a conversation with a, a friend. There is a difference between referring to someone as a non-believer versus an unbeliever. Non-believer connotes neutrality and passivity. Unbeliever reveals the suppression at the heart of those who actively reject God. And here's this other refrain in the passage. We said there were two. Here's the other one. It's verse 24, 26, 28. Says, Paul says, when people know the truth, they suppress it, they say no to God, and, and then here's the form that God's wrath takes presently. God, here's the refrain, God gives them over to their idolatry. That's the wrath. God gives them over to their idolatry. As one writer put it, God looks at mankind who says, my will be done, and God says, thy will be done. And he gives them over to idolatry more and more that what that looks like is he lifts the restraint of their conscience and hardens their heart. Think about this. If you lie and you lie over and over and over, uh, that conscience, your conscience will stop, more and more stop telling you that you're wrong. The conscience stops working. And then they don't even, you don't even realize you're lying anymore. It's the same with sexual immorality. If you sleep around, uh, at the beginning, everyone knows that that's wrong and they, and they feel it. But if you continue to do it over and over and over, over time, that conscience, your conscience stops telling you that you're wrong and that feeling goes away. 
Sinclair Ferguson, uh, an, another minister, uh, said it this way. He said, giving up natural relations is a bad choice. He's talking about this passage. Giving up natural relations is a bad choice. Being consumed with lust is a bad start. Committing shameless acts is a bad lifestyle. And they have received from God their due penalty, which means this thing of mankind wants freedom. Freedom from God is a judgment from God. Paul says that it's not an accident, that, that, that there's something supernatural and divine going on uh, when God gives mankind over to their idolatry. That's from God. It, it, this thing of like, I thought God was coming at the end with His right. Yes, God is coming at the end of all things in judgment. And Paul says here, the rest of the New Testament says that God is already pouring out His wrath on mankind for their idolatry now. Now, some atheists are honest enough to admit this, even as they're suppressing it. They can admit it. One of the most respected essayists of the past 50 years, David Foster Wallace, he gave a commencement speech in 2005 at Kenyon College. This is a really well-known speech now. Um, keep in mind, I'm going to read you just an excerpt. Keep in mind, he is not a Christian. This is not a Christian. And part of the speech, he says this, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you, you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Here, this is not an outsider to idolatry writing about idolatry. David Foster Wallace was not a Christian, but he knows and he confesses that a life lived apart from God, he's trying to get at it, it is a life of torment. It is a life of wrath because you are not Lord of your life, and when you deny God as Lord of your life, you will be in torment. And he says, whatever you give your life to that's not God, it will eat you alive. And tragically, three years after Wallace gave this speech, he took his own life. It is not monstrous atheist people that experience this torment. It's all kinds of people. It's every person who opposes God. Regardless of whether you're a guy or you're a girl, or you're rich or you're poor, or you're young or you're old, you're, regardless of your ethnicity, where you were born, your background, whether you're a creep or you're super, super, super polite. And there's hope. It begs this question of like, okay, wait, wait, wait. Why does God presently torment people? Mankind, the unbeliever. It is so they would see their desperation, that they would see they are perishing, that they would be jolted awake when they hear the gospel, which is verse 16, where we start, how the passage begins, the only power of salvation. And it is for Gentiles as much as it is for the Jew. 
Let's do a big so what here. Like so what? What so what for you? What are you supposed to do? You are not the creator and you are not the judge. And so it is not your role to condemn those outside the church. Say that again because this is really important. You are not the creator. You are not the judge. And so it is not your role to condemn those outside the church as if they were beyond salvation. Your job as a Christian is to hold out the gospel of grace to all unbelievers. Uh, uh, your job is to reach them with the gospel. So from homosexuals to sexually promiscuous to adulterers to gossips to boastful know-it-all jerks to social climbers to the rebel youth to swindlers and thieves, business people who are huge cheats uh, and scandalous uh, to criminals. Your job is to reach them with the gospel. To be loving and gracious toward them. So, let's just take one example from this passage. If you would say, I would not go to dinner at the home of a homosexual couple and have dinner. I I just couldn't do it. Well, that would make you a bad Christian, but a great Pharisee. Because that's what they said when Jesus ate with sinners. We do not shun people. And we do not refuse to be a part of unbelievers' lives. We are not going to retreat from the world and live in a commune. And when it comes up in a conversation with any unbeliever, what you believe, what does it mean to be a Christian? You have to tell them the truth. You have to tell them the truth of the Gospel. That we are all sinners. And we will all perish forever if we do not put our faith in Jesus and repent of our sin. But this is really, you do not say, you do not say that. Uh, you do not say that if they put their faith in Jesus, sin will no longer be a struggle, a struggle for them. The Bible does not make that promise. And Paul is going to talk about that next week. You know, we're talking about the unbeliever this week. Next week, he goes after us. Uh, you do not tell someone that if they put their faith in Jesus, sin will no longer be a struggle for, struggle for them. The Bible doesn't make that promise, but sometimes Christians do. And people convert, and then they still struggle, and then they doubt their faith. They may struggle with their sin until they are called home to heaven, or Jesus comes back, like you. We share the Gospel, and we're honest about the struggle. And the, and, and the reason you tell them You tell them out of love and grace, not judgment. Remembering that your faith, yes, it is exclusive, but it's it's exclusive just like their views are exclusive. And you tell them remembering that your faith is truly, wonderfully, beautifully, infinitely more inclusive than their views because their views, every single one of them, whatever their views are, they are ultimately basically about being good enough as they define being good. And your faith is about someone else being good enough for you because you're not good enough. He's good enough for you and He's for them too if they want Him. That you are no better than them. You are just as guilty before God as they are and just as desperate for grace as they are and no more deserving of it than they are. This is, 
Loved ones, this, is per- this hard stuff right here, it is personal for every single one of us. And at the cross, at the cross, God unleashes his wrath on his son, but it's not for Jesus' sin. Jesus didn't have any sin. And it is not for the whole world so that anyone and everyone who was ever born can live however they want because they're covered by Jesus. The gospel is not universalism. Jesus died for the sins of his people. That is personal. When Jesus took God's wrath, it was for your sexual immorality. It was for your haughtiness. It was for your selfishness. It was for your gossip and your malice, your insolence, your disobedience, your heartlessness, your ruthlessness. It was for your affirming and encouraging others to sin. The other refrain of God giving the unbeliever over to their sin, uh, that very same verb you know, this is the thing of like when, when the Romans get the letter, they don't read it like, hey, this Sunday we're just going to read this passage. Next Sunday, they read the whole, they read the whole letter. So they would have gotten to this part. Uh, the other refrain here, that this thing that says uh, God gave them over, you see that refrain twice more in Romans. Romans chapter 4 and Romans chapter 8. And it says the same thing. It says this, He who did not spare his son, but gave him over for us all how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Loved ones, that is the gospel that you must believe in order to hold it out to others who are perishing without it. The only way to escape, ultimately and forever, being given over to God's wrath is to believe in the one he gave over, that God gave over to his wrath for you. The only way to escape God's wrath is to believe in the one God gave over to become the object of his wrath for you. Is to believe this gospel. And there is no other gospel but this gospel. It is the power of salvation to anyone and everyone who believes. Let's pray. Father, what a... What a hard gospel, Lord, uh, to hear its exclusiveness. But Lord, we pray that we would leave here hearing its inclusiveness. That none of us, none of us are beyond your mercy. Nobody out there that we love, that we're concerned for, that we care about, no one is beyond your grace. Lord, bless us to not give up. To not give up on each other here. To not give up on those out in the world. Father, help us to hold out the gospel of your grace, to believe it, to give ourselves to it. Lord, to worship you as our Lord and Savior in order that we might love you, love each other, and love those who need Jesus. We pray for the people here. We pray for those who are not here. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.